Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. Hello everyone. It is great to be back behind the mic and recording again. For those of you who missed the announcement on Facebook or Twitter, there was a family health emergency with one of my children last month, so the show has had to be delayed for a bit. Luckily, the wonderful NHS was there in our darkest hour, and I can't thank the wonderful paramedics, doctors, nurses, care assistants, and others who saved us from real tragedy. Free healthcare should be a human right, and I am truly grateful. Today's topic is starting off a big running theme. Too big for one single episode. We are going to have a few episodes on sex, sexualities, marriage, gender, and all the fun, messy, upsetting, and uplifting things that come with being human. Before we get started, I want to say a big thank you to the continued support of all my patrons and donors. It is really appreciated, especially in these more difficult times. I'd especially like to welcome my new patrons, both respectable governesses, Roberta Downey and Jeremy Hoffman. Thank you both. I'm working on more patron specials and expect part two of the Dickens murder soon. Also, I've had a lot of listener emails and DMs since the Christmas episode, and I'm slowly but surely getting back to everyone, but it has taken a bit longer than I expected. I've also got some listener reviews to cover. First up, I had a one-star review from Smirter Than This, quote, terrible. I would rather listen to fingernails scraping down a chalkboard, end quote. Okay, sorry the show isn't for you. In the absence of constructive feedback, I'll just wish you all the best in finding a show you like. Next up is a five-star review from Helmessage, Spain. Quote, just what I was looking for. It's a great podcast. I have listened to many history podcasts looking for information about this particular period, but they only had a few episodes about it. And the age of Victoria is exactly what I was looking for. A deeper, monographic podcast with lots of interesting facts and information all in the same place. I haven't listened to all the episodes yet, but what I've heard so far, excellent. Thanks. End quote. My pleasure. And I hope you enjoy catching up with the show. Finally, a five star from Mr. Buster, USA. Quote, there are a handful of good British history podcasts, but I appreciate that this focuses on a specific age of history that spans less than a century. This podcast is also a perfect complement to the Forgotten Wars podcast, which focuses on British involvement in Southern Africa during the Victorian era. End quote. Thank you. And yes, I'm proud to be a niche focus, as it means I can devote the attention to the subject that it deserves. I'd also recommend the Forgotten Wars podcast. It really is a nice little show on topics that really don't get enough of an airing. So check it out. Today, we are going to be looking at sex in the Victorian era. I will give you fair warning that this episode will be covering adult materials and will contain graphic references. This episode will not be suitable for younger listeners and I will be using some very blunt language, including swearing. 
If sex makes you uncomfortable or hearing someone talking about it makes you uncomfortable, this might not be the episode for you. It will also perhaps be a bit more philosophical or speculative than some episodes. Sex is more than just facts or figures. It's also about feelings and values and life choices. Now, let's get cracking. In our last main episode in November, we looked at Queen V and her early days married to Prince Albert and her love of his habit of going commando in tight white riding breeches. As I've mentioned before, Victoria had a very high sex drive from the hints she gives in her diaries, her comments to doctors and her large family. But with one famous exception, pregnancy before the era of artificial insemination required sex. Lots of it. So it might be worth explaining why we are even doing episodes on sex and sex-related topics rather than me just giving you some demographic figures. Firstly, it is a fundamental part of humanity. It is a driver and often psychological imperative. It helps bond people and societies across a huge range of mammals. It is used to define and support social hierarchies. Secondly, our attitudes towards it shape our attitudes towards society in general, which means our view of Victorian sex can sometimes prejudice us or cause misunderstandings. And thirdly, it is just a really interesting topic. To some people, sex is a joy. To others, an act of communion. For some, it is just some fun. Whilst to many, it can be a source of pain or even horror. There are people for whom it is of no interest whatsoever. And it is the entire life of others forming the basis of their relationships and their personalities even. It can be seen as an act of religious submission, of procreation or capitalist exploitation or even pure political statement or just passing a few hours on a Sunday afternoon. It can be seen as a means of controlling women or a mechanism for women to exploit men. So much depends on a person's point of view. It can change as a person ages and even from partner to partner. It can come to define a person's self-worth or make them feel judged, insignificant or rejected by society. This makes it very interesting for a historian. It touches on class, power, economics, religion, gender relations, personal development, health, marriage and pregnancy. Yet it is often curiously absent from history books, except when talking about another king having another affair. To be really clear, the Victorian era saw a population boom in the United Kingdom, and that doesn't happen if people are prudes who put skirts on piano legs. It needed a lot of people have a lot of sex and babies, and for those babies to live longer. Population growth requires the birth rate to exceed the replacement rate of 2.1 average children. If the birth rate doesn't exceed 2.1, you can't increase your local population without immigration. Ignoring other factors like infant mortality and other complications, basically two parents and one child means population decline, two parents, two children means static population, and Two parents, three children means population growth. 
The numbers themselves will change as some people won't have children at all. Others will have children who will die in childbirth and so on. Still, it is interesting to note that in most Western countries, we are well below the 2.1 number of the replacement rate in the modern age. Italy, Spain, Russia, the United Kingdom, the United States are all doomed to irreversible population decline. Also, without modern technology, the only way for the Victorians to have children was through penetrative penis in vagina sex. You might have heard that some Victorians didn't even know how sex itself worked, which would be a problem if you wanted to have aforesaid penetrative penis in vagina sex. That's true sometimes, but clearly millions of them managed to figure it out. The idea that this was a sexless, puritanical society is rubbish, and I'll show you why as we go along. Not to say that there weren't prudish or downright puritanical attitudes. Certainly no Victorian would put up a billboard with a picture of a woman in a push-up bra saying, hello boys. They would be horrified to see our pop-up ads inviting us to meet hot milfs in our area, or the sight of women on a diet coat break lusting after a muscled builder to an empowering tune, and any Victorian woman getting up on stage to sing lyrics in the vein of Candy B's wet-ass pussy song whilst twerking in G-string would have been arrested. Let's start off with some biological facts to get us going, because there are a lot of misconceptions even about the fundamental biology involved. The Oxford Dictionary says, quote, sex is physical contact between individuals involving sexual stimulation, sexual activity or behaviour, especially sexual intercourse, comma, copulation, end quote. Well, doesn't that sound appealing? A lot of people simply define sex as penis into vagina, move around for 10 minutes, then on with listening to Gardner's question time. But sex is much wider than that and harder to define. There are a vast range of sexual activities that don't include penetration, not just including foreplay, which is an essential, but the whole range of touching, kissing, licking, talking, stroking, laughing, watching, or even beating with belts or restraints with handcuffs, if that's what tickles your fancy. Sex doesn't have to involve only one person either. It can be combinations of men, women, transgenders, affairs, orgies, polyamory, or ethical non-monogamy. As famous sex researcher Alfred Kinsey said, quote, only the human mind invents categories and tries to force facts into separated pigeonholes, end quote. Let's get some of the physical mechanics cleared up first then. Biologically, Humans are a two-sexed species with intersex characteristics or sex chromosomal anomalies occurring exceptionally rarely, with what's called true hermaphroditism only occurring in 5% of that already tiny population. I should note that hermaphrodite is not a preferred term. It means fully male and fully female at the same time, which is a clear impossibility. Intersex is a more clinically useful term, one that covers a vast range of sex 
hormone, or sex. Organ variation. But the Victorians certainly knew of sexual organ ambiguities, as the Intersex Society of North America states, quote, The conflation of sex, sexual orientation, and gender expression becomes clear in the 1890s. Use of the term psychic hermaphroditism to refer to gay men, and in the common scientific claim, university education physically masculinized women. End quote. It was becoming clear to Victorian scientists throughout the era that no one's sexual characteristics were unique or standardized, and that everyone's genitals displayed a wide range of differences. It wasn't neatly, all men are like this, all women are like that. This was rather frustrating for many, since the mid to late Victorian era was attempting to draw sharp scientific boundaries between men and women, as well as between races and even social classes. So scientific evidence that showed spectrums and immense variability was problematic for some. Of course, other scientists were more open-minded. Indeed, some Victorian doctors did attempt what we would call genital reconstruction surgery, notably clitorectomies, vaginal enlargement, or even prosthetic penises, or repair of hypospadic penises, cases where the urethra was under the penis instead of on the tip. Two-stage reconstructive surgery was available for this, although only for those of the strongest stomach, doubtless with plenty of gin ether. Without wanting to sound overly biologically determinist about things, human sex characteristics have a huge influence on the whole body. Not just the seemingly obvious characteristics, like having a penis or a vagina or breasts. To quote Julie Richards, Scott Hawley in The Human Genome, 3rd edition 2011, quote, Primary sexual characteristics are those characteristics other than the gonads that are directly required for reproduction. Male primary somatic sexual characteristics are the penis and scrotum, all of which allow a male to make and deliver sperm. Female primary sexual characteristics are the vagina, uterus, fallopian tubes, clitoris, cervix, and the ability to bear children. Secondary sexual characteristics are those sexually diamorphic characteristics that are not directly involved in reproduction. For males, secondary characteristics include facial and chest hair, increased body hair, pelvic build with lack of rounded hips, upper body muscular build, and the ability to generate muscle mass at a faster rate than the female. For females, secondary sexual characteristics include relative lack of body hair, thicker hair on the head, rounded hips and figure, a decreased ability to generate muscle mass at a fast rate, decreased upper body strength, breasts, ability to nurse children, a menstrual cycle, and increased body fat composition. End quote. Human sex is determined by genetics as well as hormones. So even with hormone replacement therapy, the underlying genetics remain predetermined. Don't forget that you would have seen an even more noticeable difference between male and female body shapes in Victorian times, 
Since Victorian men were almost entirely involved in manual labour and walking, meaning they tended to be slimmer and more muscular than us, even though they were on average shorter, whilst Victorian women were frequently pregnant or lactating even at a young age due to the lack of contraceptives. On top of this, as I've said before, the Victorians liked their men to look like manly men and their women to look like domestic angels. Ambiguity in dress style was not typically permitted, whereas today we have clothes that are far more unisex. It is true that the sex characteristics of human males are slightly easier to describe than human females, since human males don't ovulate, carry children, merge their body parts with females, get body parts eaten during sex, or insert detachable penis parts into the female to prevent being eaten during sex whilst they run away. But the animal kingdom is large and diverse, and you can find even crazier examples. At a biological level, there is a clear genetic and hormonal difference between the two sexes that has impacts across the human body system. None of which is to say that one is superior to the other, or that one is somehow simpler in practice, just that there are differences to be accounted for. The human heart is a good example. To quote from the biological basis of sex and its role as a determinant of myocardial function in health issues and disease uh, by Thomas Brand in the Sex and Cardiology Electrophysiology magazine 2020, (laughs) quote, women have a longer OTC than men. Such differences make the female heart susceptible for some specific forms of ECG abnormalities, such as ventricular tachycardia or torsade de Pontis, end quote. But he goes on to note that human male hearts are typically larger and at a massively higher risk of heart failure, even when adjusting for diet and lifestyle. Quite why the differences came into being and worked how they did was a matter that drove many Victorians mad, especially Charles Darwin, who was at his wit's end at some times, since human sexual characteristics and behaviours didn't really seem to line up with what pure environmental evolution said was advantageous, and Darwin was crucially missing the genetic evidence that would shed light on so much. So many questions, after all. Why put the testicles outside in such a vulnerable place? Why require them to have a different temperature? Why did human females retain large breasts at all times, unlike other great apes, which typically only have them when lactating? Why do human males not have bright plumage or glowing coloured bottoms like some birds or baboons? Why do humans even enjoy sex? Why do human females orgasm if there wasn't a biological benefit in evolutionary terms? Why don't human males and females have aligned matching sex drives or mating seasons? Why do humans seem to need consent and intimacy for sex? We are still asking these questions today. We often use our culture to override our biology, especially with a hyper-focus on monogamy and an unhealthy interest in telling people what sexual activities are and aren't okay for them. Darwin 
was convinced that sex was vital in understanding evolution, and some later scholars have suggested that human competition for access to sex was fundamental to the development of intelligence. Darwin struggled to resolve clearly contradictory traits in human behaviour. Many traits should cause evolutionary selection for monogamous, lifelong pair bonding like swans. These were things like pair bonding, biparental care and modest sexual diamorphism in body size, according to an article published by the Royal Society. On the other hand, things like sexual diamorphism in body composition and appearance, amongst other behaviours, should cause sexual selection towards polygamy and other modes of multiple mating. Studying this is extremely complicated, and humans seem to move from monogamy to practical forms of polyamory, or even polygamy, depending upon social conditions and geography. Darwin and other Victorians were realising that human behaviour couldn't be quickly and easily explained. References to other great ape relatives showed variations and complexities too. The sexual behaviour of chimpanzees, very different from the sexual behaviour of bonobos. Darwin knew this was all key to understanding evolution, and it's worth remembering that his famous book, The Descent of Man, is actually called The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. In the Victorian era, men were expected to pursue women for sexual reasons, and women were then meant to choose the best suitors for marriage and children in a monogamous model. So in some ways, it aligned with the idea that males competed for and pursued females. At the very least, Darwin was absolutely saying all humans would be sexual to some degree. Be a bit careful with only thinking in terms of Darwin. He was groundbreaking in his time, but modern evolutionary theory is far more complex. Genetics has provided enormous amounts of additional information, and evolutionary psychology remains a highly contentious field of study, with much of the debate of the role of sex and evolution in shaping human behaviours and psychology being more about riding political hobby horses than rigorous investigations. When looking at sex in the Victorian era, there's a risk of being over-analytic, however. As Professor Kirsten Mitchells, Dr Ruth Lewis, Professor Lucia Sullivan, Professor Fontenberry said in their article, What is sexual well-being and why does it matter for public health? Quote, Public health approaches to sexuality remain rooted firmly in the medical and biological sectors, with their focus largely on adverse health outcomes and concomitant risks. This risk-focused approach has come to be viewed as the standard for public health, eclipsing other aspects of sexuality, even though health is seldom, if ever, the primary reason for engaging in sex. Such a public health vision overlooks a contemporary body of evidence from scientific research supporting perspectives far broader than those associated with sexual health. In practice, perspectives on what constitutes normal sexuality are understood through a public health lens. In research, confusion and inconsistency across different studies 
often in reference to the same issues, make it difficult to advance the science in this area. Most importantly, the conflation of sexual well-being and sexual health obscures the diversity of experiences not clearly addressed in definitions of sexual health that people identify as relevant to their broader well-being. This truncated perspective ultimately limits our ability to understand and address everyday sexual issues. End quote. As with today, people in the past had a vast and complex array of sex and sexuality. There was no one single Victorian sexual template. Victorians had sex for a huge variety of reasons and in every position you can imagine. They just had some serious hang-ups about writing it down or engaging vocally in what we call sex positivity. If all we look at are the Victorian demographic and health outcomes or just what a small number of Victorian doctors or priests wrote, then we are not engaging with the people themselves. Sure, I could reel out some facts about the number of children born in Liverpool over three decades or the number of women arrested for prostitution in London, and I might do later on, but that is to formalise without understanding the real experience. Do you think the young Victorian couple in love didn't have that thrill inside as they looked into each other's eyes? Do you think she didn't feel a warm tingle on her neck as his breath lightly brushed her ear with an illicit whisper, perhaps wondering if they would ever get time alone away from the endless supervision? Do you think Victoria never lost herself away from her royal role as she orgasmed passionately with Albert beneath her? Or that two men might have wandered in fear and longing if those glances and manly hugs were a hint of something more? Then there was the other side of the coin, those people who never felt sexual desire, but were perhaps forced into the role of husband or wife to someone they detested. The closeted gay, or the asexual, or the 18-year-old bride, wondering what she was supposed to feel for a 50-year-old husband, or the man marrying a rich widow to preserve his family fortune, knowing he hated even the sound of her voice and the idea of sex with her reduced him to drinking and secret tears. You can be sure that whatever kind of sex it was, a Victorian was having it, even if they weren't telling anyone about it, or writing about it in a novel. As H.G. Cooks says in his 2003 book, Nameless Offences, quote, Silence about sex does not produce an absence, but merely incites other, richer, languages of description, end quote. Victorian writers used conventions to indicate that sex and sexuality that modern readers don't notice. Telling people not to have sex, refusing to discuss sex, banning certain sexual practices won't stop them happening. I can certainly say that the Victorians condemned premarital sex and adultery. They had mountains of both in real life, and both appeared in literature using all kinds of code. Don't worry about missing coded references to sex, and especially homosexuality in Victorian literature. There are an army of overly excitable historians and bloggers who will point it out for you. 
Understanding what goes on behind closed doors is never easy, and people are often very circumspect about their sexual activities. This can be because of fear of being judged, legal consequences, or just social custom. But social custom is strangely inconsistent. Most animals have sex in public. We put on clothes and then have sex in private. Or at least that's the popular myth. Many ancient Greeks and Romans would simply have had sex in public. In the same way, many a Roman city had communal toilets, where honest, sturdy Roman men would sit side by side and talk politics as they had a public shit, leaving the dirty cleaning up to the slaves. A good way to think of the problem of understanding Victorian sexuality is to ask yourself what your best friend does in bed. Do you know? Just because you've had drinks together? Or they've told you they prefer an old-fashioned relationship and aren't really bothered at all by that physical side of things. It doesn't mean they're telling you the truth. In the bedroom, they might be submissive, dominant, bisexual, vanilla polyamorous, or only able to get sexual satisfaction from the sight of a well-ordered bookcase in the background. Who knows? This creates huge problems in understanding even modern society's real sexual practices. For example, studies have frequently shown that men inflate the number of previous sexual partners they've had if you ask them, whilst women drastically reduce the number of claims. When we look At Victorian society, it is even harder since the prevailing culture did not encourage sexual openness and was bringing in more constrained gender roles. Yet there were free love movements in Victorian England and I've mentioned sex cults in some of the members' specials. Victorian writing about sex was far more common than you might think and covered a range from the highly medical to the legal To the adverts for quack remedies for curing STDs, there were novels, including pornographic ones, and once photography was invented, it was almost immediately used for pornography. Important safety note, don't treat pornography, either Victorian or modern, as fully representative of real life, or assume that it even presents desires that viewers actually wanted to act on. Fantasy and reality are often kept rather separate. Otherwise, human men would just have to dress up as plumbers for older women in suspiciously large kitchens to engage in courtship and mating rituals. You can almost hear the Sir David Attenborough narration in the background, but common sense tells you real humans simply don't work that way. One textbook I read stated the Victorians practiced a culture of abstinence with a combination of fear of pregnancy and sexual ignorance, meaning that there was little sexual pleasure, so people were happy to give sex a wide berth. It went on to state that Victorians rarely engaged in other forms of sex that would avoid pregnancy, such as oral or anal sex. The same book, without irony, also noted the large numbers of men visiting prostitutes in London. So, As with everything in life, the reality was a lot more complicated and I guarantee you they were having a lot of sex and enjoying it. After all, 
even teenagers with no sex education whatsoever, soon figure out that getting naked and touching or licking each other's bodies is great fun and will pretty much work it out from there through trial and error. Lots of error. And perhaps if the man is lucky, a lifelong knack of unclasping a bra with one hand. People who think the Puritans, like Dr. Acton, were typical of Victorian sexual attitudes, or that piano legs were covered with skirts in case people got overexcited, are just wrong. The invention of the camera saw a flood of pornography. There were vast erotic magazines, like The Pearl. This is freely available on wiki sources and contained everything, from teenage lesbian sex to BDSM to incest porn. Just a poem from the first issue will show the enormously blunt and graphic language, as I want you to understand this was not coded hints about her swelling bosom, but full-on frank sex talk. Quote, There was a young lass they called Bonnie Bet, with a jolly fat ass and a cunt black as jet. Her quim had long itched, and she wanted I vow, a jolly good fucking, but couldn't tell how. She thought of a plan that might serve as the same, that she herself she might shag without any shame. So a carrot she got, with a point rather blunt, then she rammed it and jammed it three parts up her cunt. She liked it so well, she oft used to do it, till at length the poor girl had occasion to rue it. For one day, when amusing herself with this whim, the carrot it snapped and part stuck up her quim. She went almost mad with vexation at this. Indeed, it was time the poor girl couldn't piss. The lass was in torture. No rest had poor Bet. So at last an old doctor she was forced to get. The doctor he came and she told him the case. Then with spectacles on and a very long face, he bid her turn up, though she scarcely was able, and pull up her petticoats over her navel. Her clouts she held up round her belly so plump, and he gave her fat ass such a hell of a thump that he made her cry out, though he did it so neat, and away flew the carrot, bang into the street. Now a sweep passing by, he saw it come down, picked it up and he ate it, and said with a frown, By God, it's not right. It's a damn shame, I say, that people should throw buttered carrots away. End quote. Then, There's the astonishing work, My Secret Life, by Walter. This was a sex memoir written in 1888 and is mind-blowingly graphic, even by today's standards. If you do want to read it, it is available for free, but it has scenes in it involving his earlier sexual experiences that are potentially traumatic. It wasn't a book you would easily believe was Victorian. Be aware... It was a mix of fact and fiction with lots of tropes that the Victorian audience would have expected. Sort of like watching a rom-com. There will be things that are real or based on the real life, then huge amounts of exaggeration and Hollywood fantasy. You could use it to pick up clues about life and dating in the 90s or the 2020s, but it wouldn't be a hugely accurate source unless you knew the background. There were incidents, he mentions, of mutual masturbation with other boys at school, 
which are not surprising, but clearly some of these encounters were not consensual, either with him being forced into things he's not comfortable with by older boys, or even women, or him engaging in spying on sleeping relatives. When you read the first chapter closely, it is clear he is being described as being sexually abused by his nursemaid between the ages of five and eight, and she was fired for misconduct. Certainly, the episode where he loses his virginity to a much older servant, when he is, I guess, around 14, is uncomfortable, as he has a panic attack about what to do, and whether he would catch an STD, only for her to mock him as not being manly enough when he lost his erection. Quote, What then she did with me, I know not. She may have frigged it. I think she did, but can't say. A sense of disgrace had come over me, as she said I was not man enough. Disgrace mixed with fear of disease. Let me try, said I. Again, she laid back. I have a faint recollection of my finger going in somewhere deep. Again, of my prick touching her thighs and rubbing in something smooth and nothing more. You are not man enough, she said again. End quote. Nor was his journey to adult sexuality helped by his experiences with masturbation. He discovered he enjoyed it, but had trouble retracting his foreskin. A kindly local chemist offered to give it a quick trim with a sharp knife, but he declined. He wrote to his best friend for advice, but the letter fell into the wrong hands and, quote, After I had one night exhausted myself by masturbation, my godfather came to see me. He stared hard at me. You look ill. No, I am not. Yes, you are. Look me full in the face. You've been frigging yourself, said he, just in so many words. He had never used an improper word to me before. I denied it. He raved out. No denial, sir. No lies. You have. Don't add lying to your bestiality. You've been at that filthy trick. I can see it in your face. You'll die in a madhouse or of consumption. You shall never have a farthing more pocket money from me and I won't buy your army commission nor leave you any money at my death. I kept denying it, brazening it out. Hold your tongue, you young beast, while write to your mother. That reduced me to a sullen state, only at times jerking out I haven't. He put on his hat angrily and left me in a very uncomfortable state of mind, end quote. Then, in a weirdly karmic turn of events, his father died, leaving them nearly bankrupt, only for the godfather to die shortly after and leave him a fortune. Fate sent a new chance his way when he was 16, in the shape of the lovely Charlotte. Quote, she was a little over 17 years, had ruddy lips, beautiful bath, darkish hair, hazel eyes, and a slightly turned up nose, large shoulders and breasts, was plump, generally of fair height, and looked 18 or 19, end quote. He caught a glimpse up her skirts when she was tangled up dismounting a cart, and it fired up his imagination, since her bloomers would not have covered her vagina, so he'd seen her fully naked, in his mind. She was soon enthusiastically kissing him, but he wasn't sure how to get her to actually have sex with him. Regrettably, he turned to a friend for advice. His friend gave him the blunt response. Quote, Tell her you've seen her cunt and make a snatch up her petticoats when no one is near. 
Keep at it and you will be sure to get a feel. And someday, pull out your prick, say straight to her you want to fuck her. Girls like to see a prick. She will look, even if she turns her head away. This advice he dinned into my ears continually. But for a long time, I was not bold enough to put his advice into practice. End quote. Unfortunately for him and Charlotte, he finally tried to follow his friend's advice, leading to an almighty bust-up between the couple and lots of screaming and tears. The incidents repeated, with them kissing and making up, followed by him committing what to us would be considered serious sexual assaults. It then carries on like this, in graphic illustration of why people need to be taught about informed, enthusiastic consent. How much of Charlotte's reaction was genuine fear or resistance, and how much was due to expected social roles is unclear at times, but at other times it is crystal clear she was not consenting and he was forcing himself onto her, probably including the first time they have sex. But she seems to have wanted a second encounter. At other times, she seemed more willing, and occasionally initiated encounters. It is a harrowing read when you look at it, and think about it from her perspective. She doesn't seem able to do. He often seems to think that he is supposed to be forcing aside objections, as this is what women are expecting from the literature he has read, the Bible, and the tiny scraps of information he gets from friends. Eventually, though, Charlotte and he decide to do things properly and go to rent a room in a brothel. Quote, it was a gentleman's house, although the room cost but five shillings, red curtains, looking glasses, wax lights, clean linen, a huge chair, a large bed, and a cheval glass, large enough for the biggest couple to be reflected in, were all there. I examined all with the greatest curiosity, but my curiosity was greater for other things. Of all the delicious, voluptuous recollections, that day stands among the brightest. For the first time in my life, I saw all the woman's charms, and exposed my manhood to one. Both of us knew but little of the opposite sex. With difficulty, I got her to undress to her chemise. Then, with but my shirt on, how I reveled in her nakedness, feeling from her neck to her ankles, lingering with my fingers in every crack and cranny of her body, with what fierce eyes, after modest struggles and objections to prevent, and I had forced open her reluctant thighs. And I'm just going to censor the next few sentences for sparing my viewers' blushes and pick up the narrative after their first time. Quote, All this, I recollect, if it occurred but yesterday, I shall recollect it to the last day of my life, for it was a honeymoon of novelty. Years afterwards, I often thought of it when fucking other women. We fell asleep, and must have been in the same room some hours, when we wakened about three o'clock. We'd eaten nothing that day. Both were hungry. She objected to wash before me, or to piddle. How charming it was to overcome that needless modesty. What a treat to me to see that simple operation. We dressed and left, went to a quietish public house, and had some simple food and beer, which set me up. I was ready to do it all over again, and so was she. We went back to the house, and again to bed. The woman smiled when she saw us, 
the feeling, looking, titillating, bawdy, inciting, and kissing recommenced. And again, I'm going to have to censor the next bits. Okay, remember though, this is a pornographic memoir, and it is far from clear how much of it is real, and how much is shaped towards what a reader might be expecting. Still, it is useful from a social historical perspective, since it gives us interesting social insights. We frequently see that women are hairy, with hairy armpits commented on admiringly. Pubic hair is a given. We learn how both genders dressed and moved. Charlotte slept next to another maid and was sure the other woman had masturbated next to her on occasions, telling us about sex and sleeping arrangements for domestic servants, sometimes including toilet habits, which were far more public and cramped than we're used to today. It is a running theme just how much people gossip, how on top of each other people were in their cramped houses and communal Victorian streets. We get snippets of how days are spent in bed together, in rented rooms, or by bribing respectable locals into turning a blind eye. Mutton and ale seems to have been a favourite sex snack. Quote, I spent Charlotte's third holiday with her in a comfortable bedroom. We stopped from 11 in the morning till 9 at night, having mutton chops and ale, and being as jolly as we could be. We did nothing the whole day long but look at each other's privates, kiss, fuck, and sleep outside the bed. It was there she expressed curiosity about male emissions. I told her how the sperm spurted out. Then, discussing women's, she told me of the pleasure I had given her when fingering her in the manner described already. We completed our explanations by frigging myself to show her, and then my doing the same to her with my finger. I bungled at that, and think I hear her now saying, No, just where you were is nicest. Does it give you pleasure? Oh yes, but I don't like it that way. Oh, oh, I am doing it. Oh, end quote. But young passions soon pass, and before long he was having a fling with an older married maid called Mary. She hated her husband, since he had been unfaithful, and given her an unspecified disease. Interestingly, she mentions at one point she only let him have sex with her, as she already thought she was pregnant, and so there was no danger. But once she realised she wasn't pregnant, she told him it was over, only for the two of them to give in to passion and have a lengthy sex session. Then, an anxious wait for her period. Fictional or not, it does give you an idea of how prominent worries about pregnancy were in the pre-contraceptive age. Well, I hope that's got your pulses racing but hasn't totally scandalised you or horrified you at the language and you've realised there was passion beneath the black suits and elegant gloves. Join me next time as we explore the sex lives of the rich or the infamous. Okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts 
takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.